tonight, if you'll bear with me. There are some things I'd like to express to the congregation here and the various ones within it about our stay here, your hospitality, the wonderful food we've enjoyed, another great meal tonight, as Mark has said. Appreciate all that's been done to accommodate us in our time here. You've been most accommodating and most hospitable, and we're grateful for the privilege to be here for the opportunity to be able to share this time together. And appreciate Joey's prayer tonight. Appreciate that we've had gospel preachers here just about every service, and that's always a joy to have. I had a high school friend of mine one time went after I'd started preaching and went back, and he said, you ever get nervous when preachers are in the audience? And I said, well, no, not really, because I know they're for me and not against me. So at least you have that much on your side. But it's good to have him and his family tonight, and good to have each of you here. Some of you, as Mark has also mentioned, have been here each service, and I commend you for that. There are a lot of things you could be doing on a a beautiful night like tonight, especially. We have had some uh, weather issues, but not tonight. But you're here, and I appreciate that. And I fail to mention this good group of young people that sits up front. I know others are scattered throughout, but you have a good group that has been sitting up front, and I appreciate that. Our group at Westside, though not as big as yours, usually sits up front, and I always appreciate that. And they've been giving really good attention as well, and so I appreciate that so very much. And in consideration of that, tonight's lesson, though for us all, will be primarily directed in their direction because, as I mentioned last night, many of us who are older can look at our lives and know that we have less days before us than we have behind us. And these young people, all things being equal, have more days ahead of them, and so they have more opportunity. More opportunity for good, of course, but also more opportunity for temptation. We always want to stress lessons in regards to them on occasions like this and in activities like this tonight. Well, I had a blonde joke, but I was threatened that my tires would be cut and all kind of things by somebody. I won't say who, but... uh, I know, I'm, 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 I'm not, I didn't have a blonde joke, but I was threatened, so I, that part is true. But Good to see each of you tonight. We're glad that you're here. Thank you, Mark, for your hospitality. It's been good to be with him and with Marlene and to renew our acquaintances. Always a delight to be associated with him. Thank you to your elders for the opportunity to be here, to Connor and to James for their good job in leading our singing and others who have directed us in such a fine way in our worship together. Mark has mentioned that tonight's lesson is entitled, What Sin Will Do for You. You always hear that there are two sides to every story, and that's usually the case. At least two sides, sometimes there's more. And we often in our preaching want to reveal the the dull side of sin. We want to show sin for what it truly is, and we want to show sin as being something destructive to our souls as it is, and something as that we should stay as far away from as we could. But tonight we want to give the devil his due, if you will. We want to look at the shiny side of sin. That is, give sin its due by showing that sin does have its shiny side. Sin will do some things for you, and we want to reveal that tonight. In Hebrews 11, verse 24, the Bible says, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. The Bible then tells us that there is pleasure in sin. Obviously there is or it would hold no attraction for us. Obviously as well, sin in some areas is more tempting to some of us and then sins in other areas. Uh, I've mentioned this on occasions. I've never been a real big soccer fan. And so if you were to come to me with soccer tickets to the premier game of our generation and say you can have these soccer tickets and you can go to a soccer game on Sunday night, you'll have to miss worship to do it. That wouldn't be much of a temptation to me. But to some people, that'd be a great temptation. Now, if you were to come and say, I've got tickets to an Alabama football game, now, we might talk a different thing, but temptations then fall in different areas. But sin is pleasurable. It has its shiny side. It has its tempting points. And those, of course, are appealing to us in one form or another. But just what will sin do for you? First, sin will take you farther than you really want to go. Sin is not always finished with a man just because a man is finished with sin. Consequences follow actions, of course. In Hosea chapter 8 and verse 3, the Bible says, Israel hath cast off the thing that is good. And in Hosea 8 and verse 7, it says, Then they have sown the wind, they shall reap the whirlwind. We know a comparable passage to that in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, Be not deceived. God is not mocked, for whatsoever men soweth, that shall he also reap. He that soweth to the flesh, shall of the flesh reap corruption. He that soweth to the Spirit, shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. We know then that there are consequences that follow. And, as I stated earlier, sin is not always finished with a man, just because the man is finished with sin. Many want to sow their wild oats and then pray for a crop failure, as we often, often say. When we think about this standpoint, from sin from this standpoint, that it will take us farther than we want to go, there are some examples to whom we can look. Think about Lot for a moment. Lot is an enigma to us. We read nothing good about Lot in the Old Testament, but we read nothing bad about him in the New Testament. Lot was one who followed on the coattails of his uncle Abraham, and yet he got into a lot of trouble on his own. When we read about Lot, we read in Genesis chapter 13, 14, and 19, basically about him. Genesis chapter 13 and verse uh, number 12, well, beginning in verse 7, the Bible says, and uh, let there be no strife, Abraham said. There was strife, the verse 7 tells us, between the herdmen of Abram and the herdmen of Lot. And the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled in the land in that day. And Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between thy herdmen and my herdmen, for we be brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? If you will go to the right, I'll go to the left. And if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. It was with that choice then that Abraham put before Lot that Lot made the decision that cost him greatly. The Bible reveals to us that Lot then looked to the well-watered plain of the Jordan. The Bible then tells us that he... Um, chose him all the plain of the Jordan. And then it tells us in verse 12, he pitched his tent towards Sodom. The first occasion then when we see Lot in this situation with a choice to make on his own and going out on his own, he pitched his tent towards Sodom. When we think about the progression of Lot's life, it's much like Psalm 1. The psalmist said, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Notice the progression. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth and the scornful. 
But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. At the outset of that, the psalmist said, walks, stands, sits. Follow with me with light. Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom. The next time we encounter Lot is in Genesis chapter 14, the very next chapter. At the beginning of this chapter, there were four kings, Ketaleomer, Amraphel, Arioch, and Tidal. These four kings set out to do battle against the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, Zeboam, and Belah. This little town, Belah, later became known as Zoar. Now, we often speak, and we'll just make this point before we go further, we often speak about Sodom and Gomorrah, and we're all familiar with them, but we often speak of them as if they were one city, Sodom and Gomorrah, but that's actually two. And we often have the misconception that only Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed in Genesis chapter 19 when the Lord condemned those, that area. But it was actually Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, and Zeboam that were destroyed. Deuteronomy 29 and verse 23. Bela, this other small town later called Zoar, was also slated for destruction. But it was this small place that Lot appealed to the Lord to allow him to go to. And because of that appeal, that city was not destroyed. But Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, and Zeboam were. Now, back to Genesis 14. These four kings, Ketaleomer, Amraphel, Tidal, and Arioch, went to do battle against the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, Zeboam, and Bela. They overcame them. They held them in bondage for about 12 years. The 13th year, these five kings rebelled against the four kings. And in the 14th year, the Bible tells us that these four kings came against them with a vengeance. And when they did so, they overtook those five kings and overtook predominantly Sodom, which was likely the more predominant of any of those cities. And the Bible tells us in Genesis 14 and verse 19, Genesis 14 and verse 12, that Lot dwelt in Sodom. Remember the first time that we saw him in Genesis 13, he pitched his tent toward Sodom. This next time we see him, he's dwelling in Sodom. Now it was on this occasion that Abraham gathered 318 of his fighting men, you recall, and went and took care of those four kings and brought back the goods of Sodom, and that's when he encountered Melchizedek. Now the next time we encounter Lot is in Genesis 19 and verse 1. In Genesis 18, you recall, three individuals had come to Abraham, one of them being the Lord incarnate. One, these three men came, two angels and the Lord, all appearing as men, and they met with Abraham, and they discussed whether or not they should tell him what was about to happen. They decided they would. They revealed to him that Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, Zeboah, and Bela, these, these towns were about to be overthrown and destroyed. Remember that in Genesis 18, Abraham said, Lord, will you spare it for 50 righteous people? The Lord agreed. Will you spare it for 45? And the Lord acquiesced. Will you spare it for 40, for 30, for 20, for 10? The Lord said he would. Abraham had confidence that in Sodom there would be ten righteous souls. Ever wonder why he had that kind of confidence? Genesis 19, just a couple of matters before we go further about where he was. 
Genesis 19, two of these individuals, the two angels that had appeared to Abraham, go further to appear to Lot and to rescue Lot from this place. These two go to Lot, of course, and then the, the inhabitants of Sodom come to him and they want to, they want to have a, a, a homosexual relationship with those two men who have come his way. Now, in Genesis 19 and verse, um, verse 7, Lot said to those people, I, I said, I pray you, brethren, and said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Behold now, notice verse 8, Lot said, I have two daughters which have not known man. If we look at Lot's house then, on this occasion, he has him, his wife, and two daughters that are not married. We look further down in Genesis 19 and verse 13. The angels say to Lot, for we will destroy this place because the cry of them is waxing great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which had married his daughters. Now I read one Hebrew linguist who said that this word sons is a very distinct word in the Hebrew language. It, it implies at least two, three or more, likely. Now you think about it. Lot, his wife, two daughters that were unmarried, if he had three sons-in-laws, how many daughters did he have that were married? Three more. That'd be ten. Very likely that Abraham, considering Lot's family, said, I know there are ten righteous there. That's Lot's family. But he underestimated Lot, or overestimated him, as the case might be here. But in Genesis 19, having seen Lot pitch his tent towards Sodom, having seen him as we did in chapter 14, dwelling in Sodom, Genesis 19 and verse 1 opens up with the idea that he was in the gate of Sodom. Now, Lot, in that day and time, being in the gate meant you're on the city council. It meant you're one of the leaders of the city. Lot went from pitching his tent towards Sodom to dwelling in Sodom to sitting on the town council. Lot then had pitched his tent towards Sodom, sat in Sodom, now in the gate of Sodom. Lot, from the very outset of what we saw in Genesis chapter 13, looked, lusted, lingered, Lost. We know what happened to him from the story, of course. What started out as a very innocent desire, just a desire for a prime piece of Palestinian real estate, suddenly turned into something far more sinister. He lost his home, his wife, his daughters, and his sons-in-law. Through his daughters and their incestuous relationship that he had with them after Sodom and Gomorrah and Admon and Zeboam were destroyed, had Moab and Ammon, who became the Moabites and the Ammonites, the perpetual enemies of God's people. His legacy lived on. Sin wasn't finished with him just because he was finished with sin. Sin taught him much, took him much further than he really wanted to go. It took him for the ride of his life. What started this inner desire cost him so guilty, and his legacy continued to live on. In fact, continues to live on even today. How many have been taken much farther than they ever intended to go because of sin. Oh, it's only a few beers with the boys. We're just experimenting with drugs. It's just dancing. It's only the prom. We won't get caught. We're just doing it because everyone else is. It's only marijuana. Or how about this one? But he said he loved me. We didn't intend for it to go that far. It was the spring of 1978. I was a junior in high school, about to enter my senior year. 
Our football team in Fayette the previous fall had for the for the only the second time in school history gone to the state playoffs. We had a, a lineman at that time whose name was Kent. He was just over 300 pounds. Now that's not very uncommon today, but it wasn't that common a thing back then. 300 linemen weren't 300 pound linemen weren't a very common thing. Kent was every bit the man, 300 pounds. He could bench press a, a much more than his own weight. And had it not been likely for grades, he might have gotten a Division I scholarship. It was a year ahead of me, and so he was slated to graduate in May. I remember, I was working construction, and we were working on the house, and the general contractor had sent another one of the flunky workers like me to get our mid-morning refreshments. And so when he came back, he said, did you hear about what happened last night? He said, no. This young man, Kent, had a Trans Am, the, the Smokey and the Bandit Trans Am. Mark, you remember those? He had one of those. And he and the tight end from our football team were riding in the car, and they had been drinking. And from all evidence from the crash scene, he left the road, swerved across both lanes, finally left the road, hit a culvert, and the car went end over end. Donald, the tight end, was killed instantly. Kent was so strong that they said whenever he hit the culvert, he pushed the steering wheel down onto the column. He received a traumatic brain injury. This strapping young man of 300 plus pounds, who had a rising football career ahead of him, was put into a nursing home. Where he died 11 years later, weighed about 90 pounds. And from the time of that accident on that spring evening, 1978, till his death in 1989, was never able to speak a word, never able to communicate in any fashion with his family, couldn't even control his own bodily functions. Why? Sin had taken him farther than he really wanted to go and had brought two families to distress that would live long after the deaths of these two young men. Young people especially, be wary of Satan's overnight adventures because their destination are much farther down the road than you ever intended to go. In a sense then, be careful where you pitch your tent. Because the direction in which you pitch your tent will ultimately tell where you will dwell and then what you will do and certainly with whom you associate. Sin will take you farther than you really want to go. But secondly, sin will teach you more than you really want to know. A father on one occasion was approached by his son with a question that he had. And the father said to his son, go ask your mother. And the boy said, I don't want to know that much about it, Dad. Well, sometimes that's the case. He didn't want to know that much about it. When we think about the idea of sin teaching us more than we want to know, think about the ultimate example of that. The story is found in Luke chapter 15. Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said unto his father, Father, give me the portion of good that falleth unto me. And he divided unto them his living. Not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country. There wasted his substance with riotous living. When he, began to, when he spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of the country, and he sent him into his field to feed swine. And he fain would have filled his belly with the husk which the swine did eat, but no man gave unto him. 
And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's house have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. He rose and went unto his father, and when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion on him, ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the young man said, I have sinned, Father, I have sinned against thee and against heaven, and no more worthy to be called thy son. And the father said unto the servant, Bring hither the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Bring hither the fatted calf and let us kill it. Make merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. This prodigal son, as we call him, wanted to learn more about the ways of the world and he received a thorough education. He wasted his inheritance. He found his friends lasted only as long as his money did. He saw firsthand just how tough a life of sin can be. He graduated, if everyone ever, anyone ever did, with honors from the school of hard knocks. But he had no one to blame but himself. But look at the transformation of this young man as an aside here. We read in chapter 12 of Luke 15 where his attitude was, Give me. Father, give me the portion of goods. And then we read of a different attitude in verse 19 where he said, Father, make me. Make me as one of the hired servants. Went from an attitude of give me to an attitude of make me. Many, unlike this young man, go into the far country and never return. His story ends well for us. But if we go back in time in that story and we put ourselves in that place and we stop between his home and the far country and we wait for him to come by, and we try to stop that young man who now has a pocket full of money and the world by a string on a downhill pull. And we say to him, young man, give me a few minutes of your time and I'll save you a lot of trouble. If we could get him to stop long enough and we could tell him, you know, you're headed for trouble. You're headed for a place that's not home. You're headed for a place where you'll not act like yourself and where you'll be around people who won't care much about you. You'll eventually spend all your money. You'll be ravished and hunger." You'll be in need of clothing. You'll come home filthy. You won't have any money left. Can't stop him. Why? Because he has the world where he wants it. All things are going his way. The far side is shiny and the place at home so very dark. But once he had the attitude of make me, let's try to stop him again on his way back. And let's try to tell him, you know, if you go home, your brother's not going to like you very much. He's going to say things to your father that... He's been thinking, but was never made to say until now. And you know, your, your dad, even though he's going to be glad you come home, he still may look at you with suspicion for a long time. Other people are going to shake their head and say, oh, look at what he's done. You really want to go home to that? Can't stop him again. Why? Because he's been to the far country. Sin has taken him farther than he wanted to go. Sin has taught him more than he ever wanted to know. He's headed home. You can't stop him. Why he's got the attitude of repentance. Consider as well Eve. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, the Bible says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And the serpent on this occasion said to the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, Of the fruit of the trees of the garden we may freely eat. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. 
And the serpent said unto her, You shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, the King James Version says. The American Standard Version said, As God, knowing good and evil. Let's pause for a moment and think about the temptation which Satan presented to her. Some have the idea, many in fact, in a cursory study of this, that the temptation was that they would know the difference between right and wrong. That wasn't the temptation. Adam and Eve knew at least to a degree something about right and wrong because she said to Satan, we cannot eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden because God has said when you eat it, you're going to die. She knew it would be wrong to do that. What was the temptation? When God had said you'll die if you eat of that tree, Satan entered in the picture and he instilled doubt, denial, and deviation. Doubt. Yea, hath God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Doesn't Satan work the same way today? He works the same way with young people who are trying to make their way in the world, one foot in childhood, one foot in adulthood. Do your mom and dad really know what's best for you? Do those teachers at school really understand what being a teenager is all about? Doubt. Then there was denial. You shall not surely die. God had said you would. Once he gets you through the doubt phase, then can come the denial phase, and it won't be such a shock. You're not really going to die. But then notice the deviation. You see, the truth is, according to Satan, you're not going to suffer any consequences. It's just that God doesn't want you to be like him. You see, God does, he knows if you eat of this, you're going to be like him. And not that you'll know the difference between right and wrong, you can regulate it. He doesn't want you to be like him. Isn't that how Satan operates? He gets us to doubt. He gets us to deny. And then he gets us to deviate into the plan that he has for us instead of the plan that God has made. Eve fell for the deviation. What would it be like to be like God? How would it feel to be able to regulate one's own life? She wanted to know, but not that much. You see, it did, she didn't want to know that much. She didn't want that much control because once she gained control, things quickly got out of control. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 10, 23, O Lord, I note the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his own steps. God knew that we needed a guide all along and he gave, as among, the, among the other things he gave, as necessities for the pair in paradise was a law to regulate them. And man has had a law ever since the beginning. Sin taught her more than she ever wanted to know. Many have been taught more than they ever wanted to know from sin. Sin has its wages and the devil pays his debts. Hebrews 3 and verse 13, the writer says, But exhort one another daily, while it is called a lay, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Many painful lessons have been learned the hard way. Cemeteries are filled with the bodies of young people who, quote, just wanted to know what it was like. Prisons are populated with many who just wanted to know how the thrill felt. Beware of Satan's lessons because you'll learn more than you ever wanted to know. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. Sin will teach you more than you want to know. But third, sin will leave you longer than you really want to stay. When we think about this, think about Samson. Samson is a study in contrast. As Lot was an enigma, Samson is a contrast. Samson was one who was righteous and yet rebellious. He was born a Nazarite. He was righteous yet rebellious. He was consecrated yet corrupt. He was aware yet apathetic. He was knowledgeable yet naive. He was a leader yet he was a loner. 
He was forceful and yet he was feeble. So many things that were contrast in his life. In Judges 14 and verse 3, the Bible says his father speaking to him, after Samson had desired to go down to Timnath and obtain a wife from among the Philistines, is there never a woman from among the daughters of thy brethren or from among my own people that you have to go and obtain a wife from these uncircumcised Philistines? Samson's answer was, she pleaseth me well, get her for me to wife. And so Samson and his parents, Manoah and his wife, go down to Timnath. And on the way, Samson encounters a lion who roared against him. Samson killed it, of course. And his mother and father were none the wiser. They didn't know what had happened. He didn't tell them about it. They went down to Timnath, and there they spoke with this woman's father and arranged the, the marriage or arranged the ceremony as they did in that day and time. Samson and his parents went back to their country, and then later they would go down again. And as they went the second trip, Samson, as they arrived at the place, wondered what had happened to the carcass of the lion. And so he went to the side, unknown to his mother and father, and there was a hive of bees that had built in the remaining carcass of the lion. Samson obtained the honey from that as a Nazarite. He wasn't supposed to touch a dead body, but he did, and he would touch many more. But he took the honey, he ate it, he gave the honey to his parents. They ate it, not knowing the origin of it. He went down to Philistine country, and there he was given 30 companions as a part of this celebration for this marriage feast. Samson posed a riddle to them, you recall, on that occasion. He said, if you can solve my riddle, then I'll give you 30 sheets and 30 changes of raiment. Well, that wouldn't be too hard for us today, because if we promised somebody... 30 people, a change of clothes, we could go to Goodwill or something. We could provide that. But in that day and time, those had to be made by hand, and the material was costly, and the labor still costlier. And so the promise was a rather hefty price tag with it. And they said, all right, pose your riddle. And he said, out of the eater came forth meat, and out of the strong came forth sweetness. And those men then went to Samson's wife, this woman, a Philistine woman of Timnath, and they said, you, tell her, you find out the answer to this riddle from your husband or we'll burn your house down upon you and your father. She went to Samson and Samson eventually told her the riddle. And I can imagine, using our imagination as we so often do, as the Bible describes that scene on the seventh day just before the sun went down. Can you imagine those Philistines standing there? I see them all watching a beautiful sunset perhaps, no one saying a word. Just as the sun begins to go over the horizon, one of them said, what's sweeter than honey? What's stronger than a lion? Samson said, if you'd not plowed with my heifer, you'd not found out my riddle. And Samson then went and killed 30 Philistines and got their garments and gave them to these men and fled, knowing he would then be a fugitive. Later he goes back down into that country. Should have stayed at home this time, but he didn't. He goes back down to claim his wife and unbeknownst to him, his father-in-law had given her to another man. And that enraged Samson. And so he goes and he catches 300 foxes. He ties their tails together and he turns them loose and their stock burns them down and he kills a number of Philistines. The Philistines then burned the house down upon this man and his daughter. Samson then kills a bunch of them and he goes down and he stays in the top of the rock Edom, the Bible says. While he was there, an interesting note in that regard, because Samson was there and the Philistines then gathered against Samson's people, the Jews, the Israelites. 
And they wanted to know, because they were under bondage to the Philistines at that time, why are you gathering against us? And they said, because of Samson. In essence, they were threatening them and saying, if you don't live, deliver Samson to us, then we're going to destroy your nation. They had the power to do it. And the Israelites themselves go to Edom, this rock where Samson was. And they said unto him, Samson, what are you doing to us? Don't you know that we are in bondage to the Philistines? Think about that. Here are God's people. Sent to this land by God himself to inherit this land in order that they might bring forth eventually the Messiah into the world. They were comfortable in an uncomfortable place. They had no business being subservient to the Philistines. They were God's people. They had God's power. They had God's backing if they would be faithful to him. But they had become unfaithful and now they were subservient to these Philistines. Comfortable in a place where they never should have been. But they took Samson, one of their own. They bound him with a new rope. They brought him before the Philistines. Samson broke the rope and he killed eventually a thousand with the jawbone of a donkey. End of story, right? Samson's learned his lessons. Not so. Samson eventually goes back. He encounters a, a, a Philistine a prostitute one night. Philistines hear about it. They surround the city. Samson has to leave in the middle of the night. He takes the, the gate and bars of the city some 30 miles away. End of story. Samson's learned his lesson, surely, by fooling around with two of these Philistine women and all of this trouble. No, he still hasn't learned his lesson. And so Samson goes back and falls for the love of his life. So he thinks, Delilah. And Delilah, unbeknownst to Samson, has the five Philistine lords, the lord of Egag and Gath and Ashkelon and Ashdod and Gaza, come to him, these five leaders of the Philistines, and said, each of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Now, that was a lot of money then. A lot of money now. 5,500 pieces of silver if you'll deliver Samson to us. Tell us the source of his strength. Delilah goes to Samson and says, Samson, you know, if you loved me, if you love me, you tell me the source of your strength. How do you picture Samson? Most of the time, in the, in the characters that are presented by artists, Samson is a huge, husky guy, bulky. It's not the way we should picture him. Because if Delilah said to him, Samson, what is the source of your strength? Samson could have said, well, girl, look at this. And flexed his muscles. He couldn't do that. His strength was not in the bulk of his body. Nor was his strength really in the locks of his head. Sure, the hair was a sign for him, but the source of strength was in the Spirit of God. She was to find the source of Samson's strength, and she said, Samson, if you love me, you'd tell me. He said, well, if you bind me with seven green widths. Now, we're not accustomed to that. What is a green width? I have a chair in my house that's a straight-back chair that my grandfather made a bottom for. He went and stripped poplar bark and he stretched it around that, and when it dried then, it tightened up and formed the bottom of that chair. That poplar bark which he stripped off, was a, that's a width. And as it's green, it's flexible, you can work with it, and then when you put it in place and let it dry, it tightens up and becomes very strong. If you bind me with those seven green widths, that's what Delilah did. Now you think about you putting yourself in the place of Samson. If you tell her, the source of my strength is binding me with seven green widths, and she does that, common sense would say... If you tell her something else, she's going to do that too, right? She did. And he did. What's the source of your strength, Samson? Well, if you will bind me with new ropes that have never been used. She did. He broke those. Drove the Philistines away. Samson, what's the source of your strength? The third time. 
Notice that Samson gets a little closer to the truth. He said, if you bind my hair and weave it with the weave, whatever that means technically, that'll make me as any man. She did the same thing. Then she began really in earnest. Samson, you really don't... If you loved me, you would tell me the source of your strength. And I suppose Samson got enough of that. Instead of doing the right thing and walking away, Samson told her all his heart. Delilah being a woman and being able to see it in his eyes, call for the Philistine lords. I found it this time. She could see right through him. Philistines were gathered. He fell asleep on her lap. She shaved his head and said, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. Samson jumped up as at other times, but couldn't overcome the Philistines. They put out his eyes. They took him to the prison house to grind, and they worshipped their god Dagon with Samson as the centerpiece. Samson, you see, had been made to stay longer than he ever wanted to stay. Samson's life, doubtless, was a sorrow to his parents. Because of this, he lost his strength, his wife, his sight, and his life. But notice where he lost it by being associated with people he should never have been with. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Certainly in the life of Samson, that was the case. But think also of this idea of sin leaving us longer than we want to stay about Israel. They befriended a foreign nation, which God forbade. They intermarried with them. They violated God's will. They stayed among them and became like them. Does that sound vaguely familiar? with so many members of the Lord's body today who ape the world in our dress, in our activities, in our habits, the things we say, the places we go, the things we do. We are among them, and we become like them. And their gods, in essence, become ours. We do that, and sin will leave us longer than we ever intended to stay. Matthew 5 and verse 13, Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its savor, where shall it be salted? Henceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under the foot of men. If you read deeply into that passage in the history of what's going on, in that day and time, salt was a precious commodity. It was served as a payment to Roman soldiers and others. It's where we get our word salary from. They were paid in salt many times. But when an individual would take a bag of salt they quickly under, uh, came to understand that if you put a little sand with it, the same texture and basically the same color, it automatically increased your buying volume. And if you take that bag of salt mixed with a little bit of sand and you give it to the next man, and he mixes a little more sand with it and he increases his buying volume. And the next one does it, and the next one does it, and the next thing you know, that bag of salt is nothing more than a bag of sand. Fit for nothing but to be put out on the ground because that's all it is. That's Jesus' illustration. If we as the salt of the earth, his people, Christians, allow the world to cut us, if you will, with sand, a little here and a little there and a little there, eventually we're one of them. That's exactly what happened to Israel. They stayed among them. They became like them. They worshipped their gods and forsook their own. They were taken captive by Assyria and lost forever as an identifiable people. How many have been made to stay longer than they ever intended through becoming involved with the wrong crowd, as we mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15.33, through experimenting with sex only to be made a parent while still a child themselves, through drinking just because it was cool only to have their life completely engulfed through addiction. Watch out for Satan's overnight adventures. They usually last much longer.
Sin will take you farther than you want to go. Sin will teach you more than you want to know. Sin will leave you longer than you want to stay. And fourth, sin will cost you more than you really want to pay. Consider David. 2 Samuel 11 and 12 were very familiar to us as David's sin with Bathsheba. But the origin of that sin, the foundation of it, can be found in 2 Samuel 11 and verse 1. The Bible there says it was the time of year when kings go to war. But it also says David sent Joab. When kings go, David sent. You see, at the very outset of this story, we're told David should have been with his men. He should have been there fighting with those men, encouraging them all the way. But instead of going, he sent. Now, we can't send where we should be going. Sure, we send missionaries to foreign fields. I can't be in every nation in the world. And so we send people to foreign fields. But that's not the point. The point is we should be going some places ourselves. And I can't send someone else when I should be going myself. I have to go when the Lord says go. But David sinned, and because of that, he was walking on the, cool of this, on the roof in the cool of the evening, and he saw Bathsheba. And just like Lot, as we talked about earlier, he looked, lusted, lingered, and lost. He committed adultery with her. She became pregnant with his child. Because of that, they conspired to have Uriah killed. And David failed to consider the baggage that such a relationship would bring. As he himself said when Nathan said to him, Thou art the man. David had pronounced guilt upon that. And you think about Nathan. Think about the story that Nathan told David. David came from a shepherding background. David had held these little ewe lambs, no doubt, in his own hands. He had nurtured them back to life and brought them back from death many times, no doubt. Nathan, knowing the heart of David, said, David, let me tell you a story. And we know the story. He was a man who had one little ewe lamb and another who had a vast amount of flocks and herds. This wealthy man had a visitor and he took the one little ewe lamb. You can see David's blood beginning to boil. You can see his blood pressure going up. David said, that man's worthy of death. He should have to restore fourfold. Thou art the man. Have a lesson entitled, When Men's Blood Ran Cold. It's a phrase that we have, of course, and all of us have experienced that. But here's an instance when one's blood ran cold. Can you imagine David as he's at the point of feverish contempt for this man? And Nathan says, you're it, David. The gig's up. David knows that Nathan knows. David knows that God knows. David knows he's got to come clean. But you see, sin cost him more than he ever wanted to pay. He had to pay that price. He restored fourfold. He lost Bathsheba's child. He lost Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah, four of his children. He committed murder. He lost four sons. He was constantly at war with his enemies. During his lifetime, not allowed to build a temple, which he so desired to do. All of these things, the result of a sinful moment's pleasure. You see, David didn't intend to pay that much. Few men ever do. How many have lost their homes, their spouses, their children, and their soul for a moment's pleasure? Hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Tempted through Satan's false advertising. Think of Adam and Eve, Genesis 3. They didn't count the cost and they weren't willing to pay the price. They didn't see that the price tag was written in fine print. Numerous are the men and women who have failed to see the hidden cost 
Oh, unlike others, we won't get caught. I know I'm playing with fire, but... I know I should be taking my family to church regularly, but... I know what the Bible says about that, but... I know I'm wrong, but I'm better than those old hypocrites down there. I wouldn't spend a minute with them. I don't think really God is really concerned about. And you can fill in the blank. My first work out of preacher school was an associate minister. And because of that, and I didn't, I didn't preach every Sunday, uh, I had more time to get involved with some of the young people. And there was a young man by the name of Tony. Tony was a genius in every sense of the word. To tell you about how smart Tony was, when later in, in our uh, lives we went to Tanzania, we went back to Crossville to, uh, to visit some friends there, and I, and I ran into Tony. This was many years later, several years later, I ran into Tony at the courthouse, and he recognized me, and we talked. He said, well, what are you doing? I said, we're about to go in the mission field in Tanzania. And he said, ah, Tanganyika, that beautiful, exotic... And he began to rattle off statistics about Tanzania, formerly known as Tanganyika. And I thought, man, Tony was a young man, brilliant. And yet he had experimented with drugs and had completely ruined his mind. Tony would have lucid times when he would come to the church, he would come forward, he would repent of the wrongs, and for two or three weeks he would be the most vibrant Christian you could ever hope for. And then he'd go back into the drugs. One of those occasions when he was... In a lucid moment, I had him at the office and I said, Tony, I said, I've never had any problem with drugs. I was always afraid of them, never, never experimented with them. Tell me, tell me, what is the drawing power of drugs? And he said, well, when I smoked my first tobacco cigarette, I said, man, how can this be legal? When I smoked my first marijuana cigarette, I thought, how in the world can this be illegal? And he said, when I took my first shot of LSD... When I came to my senses, I was in the top of the tallest pine tree anywhere around in the midst of a 20 or 30 mile an hour wind and it was just swaying. And he said that was the highest high I'd ever experienced. And he said ever since that time, I've been trying to get back, figuratively, to the top of that pine tree. And I've just never been able to do it. For the first time, I had some semblance of an idea of the drawing power of drugs. But Tony told me that time, he said, I've gotten a job and I'm going to be traveling as a part of this job. And I'm going out to, to California and I've never been to California. I'm excited. I said, well, good. I said, Tony, I'm glad. When you get back, come see me. I want to hear about your trip. So we rent my bus and so it was two or three weeks later, Tony came to the office and wanted to tell me about his trip. He'd gone to California and visited here and eaten this and seen that. And he said, I boarded the bus in San Francisco and I think it was going to Albuquerque, New Mexico or somewhere. The bus was crowded, and I sat down by a young lady about my age. So over the course of the trip, we began to talk about different things, and the subject of religion came up. He said, I told her I was a member of the Church of Christ. She'd never heard of the Church of Christ. And I told her about that, and he said, and then she told me her story. She told me the story of how she was a member of the Church of Satan. and said she rolled up her sleeve to reveal a hideous scar, self-inflicted, that was her status symbol in the Church of Satan. And he concluded this story by saying this, You know, I'm glad to say that she's no longer a member of the church of Satan. But the scar is still there. And I thought, that's the very point of sin. You see, you might be finished with sin. Sin's not finished with you. Young people, scars from sin can haunt you throughout your life. Beware of the cost of sin because its price tag is much too high.
scar will still be there. What will sin do for you? Sin is no bargain, but it will give you more than you bargained for. It will take you farther than you really want to go. It will teach you more than you really want to know. It will leave you longer than you really want to stay. And it will cost you more, far more, than you ever want to pay. It was October the 21st, 1990. His phone rang at 1.30 in the morning. The news on the other end was not good. A young man, 27 years old, with a four-year-old child and a wife, had been to a party that night with his wife and they had been drinking alcohol. They would gotten into a fight on the way home and when they got home, this 27-year-old young man went to his bedroom, opened the dresser drawer and pulled out a small caliber pistol, walked out on the back deck, put it to his head, pulled the trigger. I couldn't help but think since that time, would that young man have done that had he not been under the influence of alcohol? I don't think he would have. Would he have done that had he paused to give thought to the fact that he left behind parents who grieved every day since that night in October 1990? I don't think he would have. Would he have done what he did had he thought about a four-year-old boy who would be raised now to be a grown man of his own, married and expecting his first child? I don't think he would have. You say, well, how do you know that he wouldn't have done that if he hadn't been influenced by alcohol? If he had thought about his parents, if he had thought about his son, because the phone that rang on October the 21st, 1990, at 1.30 in the morning was mine. And the young man who put the gun to his head was my only brother. What happened? Sin took him farther than he wanted to go. Taught him more than he wanted to know. Left him longer than he wanted to stay. Cost him more than he wanted to pay. And that's what sin will do for you. It was battered and scarred, the auctioneer thought it scarcely worth his while to waste much time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. What am I bidding, good folks? He cried. Who will start the bidding for me? A dollar, a dollar, then two, only two. Two dollars, and who will make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going for three, but no. From the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening the loosened strings, played a melody as pure and sweet as a caroling angel sings. The music ceased, and the auctioneer, in a voice that was quiet and low, said, What am I bidding for the old violin? And he held it up with a bow. A thousand dollars, and who will make it two? Two thousand, and who will make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, going and gone, said he. The people cheered, but some of them cried, We just don't understand. What changed its worth? Quick came the reply, touch of the master's hand. Many a man with life out of tune is battered and scarred with sin and is auctioned cheaply to a thoughtless crowd, much like the old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. It's going once, going twice, going and almost gone. Then comes the master and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul or the change that is wrought 
by the touch of the Master's hand. Tonight it may well be that sin has taken you farther than you want to go, that it's taught you more than you want to know, that it's left you somewhere longer than you want to stay, and that already it's cost you more than you want to pay. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus said, I'll give you rest from the burden of sin. He'll take it off of you. Yes, there might be consequences left to pay, but the guilt can be removed. The sin and the life that accompanies it can be eradicated from your life. That's the power of the blood of Christ. Tonight, if you're not a member of the body of Christ and you ever obeyed the gospel, we urge you, if you believe Jesus to be the Son of God with all your heart, to repent of your sins, to confess His sweet name before men, to submit to baptism for the remission of sins tonight. But tonight, as so many of us are, if you are a member of the body of Christ who's gone to the far country and you're still there, your body's here tonight. Your mind might have been engaged in the lesson we've had together, but you know your lifestyle is still over there, feeding swine in a foreign field. The Bible says about that young man in Luke 15 when he came to himself. He wasn't himself in the far country. And you're not yourself tonight in the far country. You perhaps have become, as those Israelites did in Samson's day, comfortable in an uncomfortable place. We urge you tonight to make your life right. For if you do not, sin will take you farther than you want to go. Teach you more than you want to know. Leave you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you ever want to pay. Can we help you tonight? If so, won't you come while we stand and gospel meeting has ended, that if you want to know more about the gospel of Christ, what you need to do to have salvation in Christ, we would love to sit down and study with you and talk with you. And it may be that it's sometime during the night, it may be early in the morning, but we want you to know that we're always ready to help you 
to do what is right, no matter what time of day or night. Again, we thank you for being here. We thank Eddie and Jeannie for being here. And again, we wish them a safe trip. We'll keep them in our prayers as they travel. And we'll keep each one in our prayers as we continue to seek to bring fruit that, has, uh, uh, that can grow from this gospel meeting. There will be a number of gospel meetings that will begin this coming Sunday. If you have a